even when I was in seminary. So it's going to be fun to go through it um, in the next few weeks. We're going to go through it chapter by chapter. We'll discuss themes, and what we'll learn is it's not all about sex. Uh, it's got sex in it, but it's not all about sex. So before we get going, will you pray with me, and then we'll start talking about Song of Solomon. Father, we thank you uh, that even in the awkward books, uh, you could still find pictures of your son Christ. Uh, and that in it, we learn how to be in relationship with each other, uh, not just married folk, but how we can love and respect the person sitting next to us or the person sitting around us. We thank you for these. Uh, we thank you for the example that we see here. In your name we pray. Amen. Three and a half years ago, Carrie and I had a habit in California of going to the beach. I would go surfing. And because there's this fear of sharks inside of Carrie's brain, she would stay on the beach and read. And it was fine. I enjoyed surfing. I'd go out for a couple hours, have a good time. She'd power through a book, and it'd be great. Surfing, how many of you have tried it? How many of you have tried it successfully? <laughs> yes, okay. There's a difference. Surfing is harder than it looks on the endless summer. It's actually a tough thing to do. There's a lot of things to uh, keep in mind when you're just paddling out there on a big plank. There's things like ocean conditions, there's the size of the wave, the wind, how many people are coming at you at one time, is it crowded, uh, am I going to get bonked in the head, and then there's sharks. Uh, that all, you have to keep this stuff in mind. One of the things, the most annoying thing about surfing has to do with currents. Uh, one time, my buddies and I, we, I went to school in San Diego. We drove up to this place called San Onofre, which is a really nice place to surf. There's a big nuclear plant right there, and, and it keeps the water nice and toasty. But we paddle out in San Onofre, and they have trails. For those of you who've been there, there's Trail 1, and it goes all the way down to Trail 7. They're really clever in how they name these. And so we started at Trail 2 because Trail 1 was a bit crowded. And so we go to Trail 2. You walk down about a quarter mile down the cliffs, and you paddle out, and usually you're by yourself. That day, we paddled out Trail 2, and it was a great day to be out there. There was zero people at Trail 2, and we were having a great time. And then we were out there for a couple hours, and there was, we thought there was a current, but we weren't paying much, of a much attention to it. And we're, a couple hours later, we decided it's time to go get tacos. And so we paddled back in, but without realizing it, this current that we didn't think was very strong took us down about a half mile to a mile down the coast to this trail called Trail 7, which, no big deal, right? Just a half mile walk up the trail, no big deal. But Trail 7 is a nude beach. <laughs> so here comes a bunch of guys in wetsuits. It was cold that day. In wetsuits were walking up, and then there's a nude volleyball game happening. People were wearing knee braces, and that's it. And it was awkward, to say the least. But we, it's, we got up there, and I had this thought as we're walking past like this with our boards up the trail going, oh, man, what'd we do? Sometimes currents take you to places you don't want to go. You start off in a good day. You start off on trail two, but before you know it, that current gets a hold of you, and all of a sudden, you're in a place you don't want to be. Uh, trust me. I didn't need to see some of that stuff. Currents take you places. There's a lot of currents in our culture. 
There's currents that tell us what beautiful is. There's currents that tell us how men and women should relate to each other. There's currents that dictate how we feel about certain things in our culture. And one of the most beautiful things about Song of Solomon is you see this woman who in the middle of her currents stands up to the currents of her culture and says, I'm not okay with these currents in the way they take me throughout the world. I'm not going to be okay with this. Song of Solomon, when I grew up, I thought it was all about sex, which it is, but it's more than just about sex. It's about relationships. It's about relationships that are built on love and respect for the other. Relationships that are built on mutuality. Not just marriage, but in all relationships, in all forms of life. This is why we're, the kids are having a great time downstairs. This is why that we are spending eight weeks in Song of Solomon. Because we're called to experience this kind of relationship, not just with your spouse, but with those around you. And what we see is when we take off this, uh, the culture lens that we have, because we live in this culture, and begin to see relationships the way that God sees relationships, you see that it's a lot different than what our culture dictate to, dictates to us. Song of Solomon uh, gives us a proper view of love. But in that process, it sheds light on other areas of our cultures that we, where we find ourselves trapped in an unwanted current. In the Song of Solomon, this woman is fighting the same currents that we find ourselves fighting today. The first current, we're going to look at three currents today. The first current that we see is that she's fighting uh, the current of roles. It's a broad current in our culture. Who does what? The role of man and woman. Who, it's, it's more than just who does dishes and who goes to work on Monday. It's broader than just that. But in particular, we find here that she pushes back on the gender roles of her day, the gender roles that she was forced to swim inside. Let me tell you what I mean. In the biblical context of Song of Solomon, women were not considered much more than just mere property. Uh, in Exodus, the Ten Commandments are given. And it's really troubling when you look through uh, the Old Testament and certain aspects of what, how women were regarded. In, Song of, in Exodus, it says, uh, don't kill, don't murder, all that good stuff that we shouldn't do. Then it says, don't lust after your neighbor's property, after his donkey, or his wife. And so in Exodus, you see this construct of man, woman, and women were not regarded more than anything just property. In fact, later we find out that women uh, probably were worth half as much as men and were sort of treated better than slaves. This is the context of which this woman is uh, living. There wasn't much choice that women had when it came to who they get to love whether they get to fall in love, what they get to do. There wasn't much freedom at all in that culture. But what we see is in the middle of that mess, we see that this is not how God had designed it. It's easy for us to look at the, the, how women were regarded past Genesis 3 on and forget that the story of how women and men relate to each other actually began in Genesis 1 and 2, where they were partners, where they were mutual, where they helped each other out. We forget this, and we think because our culture is broken, because our culture is okay with this kind of construct in Genesis 3, that this is how it has to be. 
That's not how God sees it. For God, he comes into our culture and meets us in the biggest places that are messy and gross and we don't like and says, it doesn't have to be this way. And so in the middle of the culture that says women were just worth half as much as men, in the middle of the culture where it says that they can only do certain things, that they're just property to be traded, to be uh, taken advantage of, to, to use as power constructs, to marry off and, and exchange... In the middle of this, we see God's desire that says this is not how men and women should be relating to each other. In the middle of the power over one another that we see post-fall, God says, gives us this story of Song of Solomon. And we see a woman who's not okay in swimming in that current. There's certain trajectories that you can find throughout the breadth of Scripture. If you start in Genesis and you go all the way to the end in Revelation, you start to see certain currents and certain themes that pop up. One of them is having to do with women. The very first thing that happens after the fall is that women are considered property. It's the first thing Adam says, I am, I'm going to name you Eve. It's a control thing. And then slowly you begin, it's real slow, slowly you begin to see women have more and more and more, as it gets to the time of the New Testament, you start to see women have more and more freedom, more and more say. It, it's disturbing when you're reading it, and if you're just focusing right on that particular context, but to see it with the whole breadth of Scripture, you have women as property. Then you get to Jesus in the, in the book of Luke, and you see that women, there were probably more women following Jesus as disciples than there were men. You start to see the redemption of women throughout the line of Scripture. And then finally, you get to Philippians, and there's this woman named Lydia who started this church. And so you see the trajectory that Scripture takes us on and says, this is not how it's supposed to be. This is broken. God meets us here and begins to walk us through of how it should be. And then finally, in Galatians, it says there's neither male or female, Jew or Greek. There is not a difference between all of them. In Ephesians, it says that it is mutual submission between man and woman. The trajectory of Scripture takes us on this journey. Song of Solomon happens way before Jesus. And this is where the, it starts. It gives us a picture of how to swim against the cultures of the day. For, for instance, in the culture of male dominance, look, how she, look what she says here. Let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth. For your love is more delightful than wine. Pleasing is the fragrance, fragrant fragrances of your perfumes. No matter how many times I say that word, it always comes out like that. Your name is a perfume poured out. No wonder young women love you. Women weren't allowed to have any opinion. And yet we see this woman giving her opinion freely. They weren't allowed to have desires. And what is she saying? I want to chase after this man. She says her, his name is like a perfumed oil, wine. Oil and wine in the Old Testament were signs of the covenant. What God is, how God comes together with us and won't leave us. This is a covenant relationship. It's one that's through thick and thin. It's one that has a, 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 it's not a contract where it says you'll do this for me and I'll do this for you. This covenant relationship is for the benefit of both. And she's desire, expressing her desire that she wants this. Your name is like perfumed oil. Any of y'all into essential oils? 
couple, uh, you don't have to be embarrassed. Carrie does them. They smell. But they, they, <laughs> some of them smell great. Some of them smell like black licorice. licorice. I'm not a fan of black licorice. Uh, but there, there's this name that this, this man has is a fragrance that lasts. She wants this. She's expressing a desire. And she continues, take me with you. Let us hurry. Let the king bring me into his chambers. She says, take me with you. In the, in the framework of Hebrew poetry, there's usually the line, we'll call it line A, because that's what everyone else calls it. Line A is contra contrasted by line B. So she says, take me away with you, let us hurry. The NIV, and I'm a big fan of the NIV, gets this wrong. It says, the NIV translated, as I read, take me away with you, let the king bring me into his chambers. That's not a good way to translate this. How does it sound? It sounds like she's wanting this king to take him, her away, right? Let him take me. The way, the better way to translate it, it's probably found in, in translations like NRSV or NASV. We can debate translations if you want later. That'll be fun for three of us. But the NASV and NRSV get this right. Here's what they say. Mr. Jeff, power up that PowerPoint. Okay, that's, that's the NIV version. Two more. Draw me after you. Let, I want to come after you. The king has brought me into his chambers. Do you see the difference? Let the king bring me into his chambers. Now the king has brought me into his chambers. She is being dominated by this king. That word brought is not a Oh, I'm being brought along. That word brought is she's being drawn in, not by her will. So you have this woman who's trapped in this misogynistic culture where men can just bring women along. People like Solomon that had a thousand of them can come into town and say, you come with me. But in the middle of that world, this woman stands up and says, I don't want to be a part of of this culture any longer. I want to be taken away by this man who smells good. <laughs> Cologne is important. By this man who, who I desire. This is not what I want. We read this oftentimes with the lens of the king is the man. The king is the bad guy here. He's bringing this woman into this relationship. She has no desire being. She's trapped in a male-dominated world where she's not allowed to have an opinion, where she's not permitted to choose who she loves, in an era where she's property, and she says, I'm tired of living that way. She's fighting the current of the misogynistic roles that we assume are okay. They're not okay. And as we look to apply this, sometimes it can get a little tricky. There's probably sometimes two, two ways to apply this. There's the way where the woman is a picture of how relationships should be, of how we can have our personal relationships. Uh, there's a, there'll be a redefining of how we relate to one another and that casts a vision for all of us on how we should. There's that kind of application. But on the other side, there's always another part of it where it says we are all sitting in the same seat the woman is sitting in, men and women. We are the bride of Christ. And we live in a culture today that dictates and dominates what we do and how we do it. 
And this shows us a picture of how Christ is calling us out of, these, of our culture into a better relationship with him. So as we look at this part, we look at, the, uh, look at it through those two lenses of the two applications. The first one, the woman is articulating that her relationship with the king is that she is being used. The king has brought me into his chambers. I didn't want to go there. In other words, I'm being taken against my will. In verse 12, she says this, While I was at the king's table, my perfume gave forth its fragrance. So she's sitting there, and remember, it's poetry. She's sitting there. She knows that she's beautiful. We'll get to that in the second part. And, no, and the king doesn't even notice that she is there. To him, she's just another woman. But while she's at the king's table, in the next verse, verse 13, who's she thinking about? My beloved is a sachet of myrrh resting between my breasts. My beloved, my beloved is a cluster of henna blossoms from the vineyards of Engedi. Her beloved is the one who's close to her heart. She might be sitting in the middle of this power-dominating world, but the poem tells us this, that the king is not the one her, whom her heart belongs to. She's not going along with the way this world is going down. This is not what she's wanting to do. She's wanting to chase down the one whom she's picked, the one whom she's loved, she doesn't want to be forced into the social constructs of power and misogyny that tell her to mindlessly go along with this man because he told you to. She becomes an example for us to swim against the culture. She becomes an example for us not to go along with the power structures that we have today. She becomes an example for us that we should pursue each relationship, not just married, not just romantic relationships, with mutuality and respect. How we relate to one another is through mutuality and respect. And because she's swimming against the currents, the currents of dominance and power in the hopes of finding true love, a healthy relationship, in the hopes of finding a relationship that brings life. To us as a community, we desire this for women, that women find your voice that God has given you. And don't be limited to the constructs of today or the constructs of some theologies or some churches that say you don't have a voice, that you don't have power. Women, you have been gifted, you have been called. Uh, there's no limit to what you can do inside of a church. This is a, a, a picture of, for you, for our church, to say you are welcome here, you are gifted, and we are not going to dictate to you how you should chase down what God is telling you. You are enabled and you are empowered to do so. So do it. The only thing that should be guiding you is the voice of God and the guidance of his Holy Spirit. Don't listen to the social constructs of our day that says you can't do something. You can and you're welcome to it. The other flip side to this application is for all of us the temptation of our world to reduce people to power, to our power relationships, to reduce people to what they can do for us instead of how can I enrich this other person. We dictate power by how much you make, what kind of car you drive, where do you live, do you own that house. 
uh, how big is your 401k? How big is your influence? And the second application that comes to us is we should not be able to reduce people and use them to our pleasure based on our power. Instead, we're called to, be, to relate to one another with mutuality and respect and not use people as slaves. Don't use them just to, end, to bring for, to extend your power and your dominance, but how can you relate to the person next to you and bring them along with you? There's two applications there. How do we swim against that type of culture? In our, in our world, we have, this cult, we have a culture that tells us how we should even pray and worship our God. And we're stuck in this culture and we shouldn't be allowed, or we shouldn't have to go along with that current. We have a culture that wants to dominate us, yet we have a Savior and we have a God who wants to entice us and bring us out of that culture into a life-giving relationship with Him. The other current that she's, that she's swimming against is this current of image. On verse 5, it says this, Dark am I, yet lovely. Daughters of Jerusalem, dark like the tents of Kedar, like the tent curtains of Solomon. Do not stare at me because I am dark, because I am darkened by the sun. My mother's sons were angered with me and made me take care of the vineyards. My own vineyard uh, went neglected. This woman stands out from other women. Some argue that it's because she possibly is Ethiopian in descent. She might be uh, darker just by the way she is. Others argue that it's not that at all. It's the fact that she works all day out in the sun. It, for me, it, it, the underlying thing is she might look different, but it doesn't take away how beautiful this woman is. Whether it's racially, whether it's just the fact that she has an outside job doing vineyards, she's still beautiful no matter what she is. This swims against the culture of that day, saying that only certain types of people are beautiful. We don't know if she was forced to work outside because she just had mean brothers. We don't know if, if there was something that happened with her that she made a, made a mistake in that day. Women make a mistake. Maybe it was sexual in nature, and they're outcasted. We don't know how it happened. We know in the text that she is forced to be outside, and because she's outside, she's darker than other women. She stands out. But here's what I love about it. She still thinks she's beautiful. In a world that tells her that she's not beautiful, she says, I don't need your opinion. I'm still beautiful. She's not willing to let herself be defined by her past. She's not willing to let herself be defined by the injustices that have been possibly done to her. She's not willing to let herself be defined by her mistakes. And this is vital that we see this because all of these currents in that day said because you've done this, because you've done this, you have been exiled to outside and because of that, you are darker, you're not beautiful. And she goes, no way, I'm dark and I'm hot. She calls herself beautiful. What's this mean for us? Do you think that you're beautiful? 
it's a hard question because guys, we're not okay being called beautiful. It's kind of weird. But are you okay saying you're beautiful? It doesn't matter what mistakes you've made. It doesn't matter that you've screwed up here and there. It doesn't matter that you have a past. It doesn't matter that you're married. It doesn't matter that you're single. It doesn't matter that you've been divorced. You're still beautiful. Why? Because God calls you beautiful. He calls you good. It doesn't matter where you've been. It doesn't matter that you don't check the boxes of People Magazine and Cosmo and GQ. That stuff doesn't matter. We place what beauty looks like in our culture and we say they have to look like this in order to be beautiful. Men and women, they have to look a certain way. They have to do certain things. They have to drive the status symbols. Here, she goes against all of that and says, I'm beautiful. It doesn't matter that you go bald at age 34. A couple of us get that. You're still beautiful. And are you able to admit that? It doesn't mean that you become this prideful, arrogant person and say, I'm this. So bow down. It doesn't mean that. It means that you are intrinsically aware of how much you are worth to the God who made you. And this is that woman's confidence. She's, she was created beautiful. And she's good. It doesn't matter what the world might say about her. Whoever told you in your life that you're not beautiful, I'm going to call him a liar. Because you are. You're beautiful and gifted no matter who you are, no matter what others had says about, said about you. You are worth more than you can imagine. And this woman gets that. She is a woman that goes against the current of what beauty is and says, I might look different than everybody else, but I'm still beautiful. She goes against the current. She has worth when nobody else says that she's worthy. How many of you have these things around your house that you look at and they're worth a ton to you, but when somebody else walks in, they go, that's a coffee cup. I don't get it. I have a coffee cup and we used it the other day that Carrie brought me when we were dating and I, I bought a condo. And the first night that I woke up there, I was freaked out that someone was going to use the keys from the last landlord or the last tenant and come in and steal all my stuff. And I... I worry about things. And so the next morning, I'm getting ready to go to work, and I hear this faint knock. And I was like, who the heck is that? No one knows I live here. And I go, and it's Carrie, and she brings me a coffee cup, because I didn't have a coffee cup. She brings me a coffee cup and a Starbucks sandwich. Aww. <laughs> we weren't even engaged yet. But she brings that to me. That coffee cup is just a coffee cup. If you were to come to our house and you were lucky enough to use that cup, you go, it's a brown coffee cup. It's probably on sale at Starbucks that morning. But for me, that coffee cup is worth something. You live in a world where someone can look at you and say, because you don't check all the boxes, you're not worthy. And this woman stands as an example to us that says we don't have to let ourselves be defined by what the world calls beautiful. You have the image of God within you. 
You have the love of Christ for you. You are beautiful. In fact, you're gorgeous. God thinks you're the greatest thing. You're beautiful for that. Stand against the current that says beauty is only defined by certain things. And those things are liars. And the last current that we see her fighting comes in verse 7. It's the current of complacency. Tell me, you whom I love, where do you graze your flock? And where do you rest your sheep at midday? Why should I be like a veiled woman besides the flock of your friends? She's not only willing to desire this kind of love, she's willing to pursue this guy to where he lives. Tell me, where do you rest? Where do you take your siestas? I'm going to come find you. She's not willing to stay in the power relationship. She's willing to leave and go after something different. How do we usually uh, react when something is going to be very, very difficult? If something, we want change. How do we react? I need to lose weight. But in order to lose weight, I have to eat less uh, Marionberry ice cream from Tillamook. And so I look at it and go, ah, oh, it's not worth it. <laughs> I'm just going to be complacent about it, right? It's too difficult. Uh, when I ran marathons, yes, before Tillamook, I ran marathons. There, there was this thing, I don't want to run 15 miles that day. It's too hard. And so I went, it's too difficult. I'm not even going to try. We become complacent with the way things are because they're too difficult for us to do them. This woman is not complacent. She pretty much asks this man out. She says, where are you going later? I'm going to come find you. In our culture, we, we don't, guys, we don't like it when women ask us out. Some do, but this, that's usually frowned upon. Shouldn't be. This woman says, where are you going to go that day? I'm going to come find you. Why should I be like a veiled woman, unknown, hidden, besides the flock of your friends? I want you. I'm going to follow you. I don't care how hard it's going to be. I'm going to pursue this. It's a warning to us not to let complacency take us to some place we don't want to be. Yeah, there's something better, but there's too much work. Don't fall for that. She fights it. And so should we. Tell me where you're going. She doesn't want to be another woman. She, as a person in her culture, she wants to be out of that old way of living and into something new. But before she can do that, she needs to let go of the currents of that day and swim against it in order to get out of the current and find herself in the place she wants to be. This is not only a theme in Song of Solomon. This is a theme throughout Scripture. There is a constant call by God saying, this is where you are, but that's not where I'm going to leave you. I want you to come here where it's more life, where it's better for you. You see this with Abraham. He's called out from his family home into something else. Moses is called out from the desert into the life that God called. Will it be hard? Yes, he's got to take these people out of Jerusalem or out of Egypt to take them into the promised land. It's going to be difficult, but you can't become complacent. In Deuteronomy 6, uh, it says this, that Mo uh, Moses is giving his last words to the people of, uh, of Israel in the desert, and he's saying, this is how you're going to talk 
to those people, or this is how you're going to tell people how we got here. And he gives them a list. Tell them about the plagues. Tell them about how God brought you across the, uh, the Red Sea. Tell them about all of these things. And here's the why. But he brought us out from there to bring us in and give us the land he promised as an oath to our ancestors. Do you see the movement? It could have been easy to stay in Egypt. In fact, that's what they wanted halfway through Exodus. Just let us go back and die in Egypt. But Moses is saying, God has called us away from this and into something better, and you can't grow complacent in this. What is that thing that God is calling you to, and you've grown complacent? It's too difficult. It's good. It's Marionberry ice cream. It's amazing. They've got chunks of crust in there. What is that thing that you say, I just can't give up because it's going to be too difficult to do? Is it thinking of yourself as worthy? Is it actually believing that you have an opinion, you have a voice, and using it? Is it thinking of yourself as beautiful? Is it getting out of a relationship that is abusive to you? Is it to actually look at somebody next to you and think of them as mutuals, respectfully? What is the thing that you have grown complacent for, towards? And the call that God places on all of our lives is the same thing that we see this woman in Song of Solomon saying, I'm not willing to stay veiled like other women. I'm not willing to be controlled. I want to chase after this. Christ chases after you. We chase back after him. And so today, as, as we end and as we celebrate communion, it's the question I want to leave us to. Yes, we see the currents of our culture. We see the currents of beauty. And how do we get out of those? We don't become complacent. We fight against them. Where is God calling you to fight? Where is he calling you to something different? something better? Or is he calling you to, to a relationship with his son? As I pray, if those who serve communion would come and we'll serve communion after that. Father, we thank you that you love us just how we are. But we also thank you that even though you love us how you are, you refuse to leave us in that place. You refuse to let us stay there. You want to call us out of that into something better into a relationship with you. Lord, we're called to celebrate beauty that each one of us intrinsically has. We're called to fight the currents of our culture and embody Christ to the world around us in the way you love people. Lord, we thank you for this awkward book of Song of Solomon and what we can learn from it. Lord, help us chase it after you through all of it. In your name we pray, amen.